0: Good morning. My name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is great to see you all. It's going to be 70 degrees this week because, you know, it's February, January. What is it now? (laughs) So isn't it perfect T-shirt weather? We were thinking about you in this very particular way. I'm glad to see you all, glad to be with you this morning. Um, We are, we're in a lonely nation I don't know if you've seen headlines. Maybe, maybe you've seen headlines of late, um, but uh, across all the media, from the Washington Post, you'll see things like: Surgeon General says there is a loneliness epidemic. A loneliness epidemic. A uh, UCLA uh, research did some uh, work with Cigna, about twenty thousand people, and found that that we're a lonely nation, not just a nation, but actually those between the ages of 18 and 22, like are are more lonely, more isolated than those that are 72 and above, which are oftentimes considered some of the lonelier years. You're better off, according to the Surgeon General, smoking 15 cigarettes a day than living in isolation and loneliness. Like that has more impact on your health and the likelihood of your mortality then, if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day. Now, every teenager in the room just is going to look over and be like, listen, I got lots of friends, so can I smoke? That's not how it works, okay? That's not how it works. We're just talking about the implications of mortality. You're welcome, Gaspian. <laughs> but um, the Atlantic says loneliness begets loneliness, and I have a whole article about this, where isolation is killing us. And that's basically what we're discovering. The Science is saying isolation is killing us. Loneliness is killing us. Americans are lonelier than never. And even though we have opportunities for so- in social media for forever expanding increased opportunities to be connected, the hyper-individualism of Western culture is leaving us as people that are disconnected and longing for real relationships. And I don't seem to be able to find them, to maintain them, and to live with them. For the most part, we're not good at people. For many of us, and for many of us, it seems like it might just be getting worse. Well, Jesus was the best at people. I mean, he was the best at people. Like no other person who's ever walked the earth, whether it was dealing with a stranger, whether he's dealing with a family member, whether he's talking to his co-workers, you know, the disciples, uh, or whether he's just engaging friends He's always engaging them with intentionality and with one single frame of mind, love. He's engaging them in love and with love. Now, what's ironic is that it looks a whole bunch of different ways, right? There's times where he's dealing with somebody, in, like, with, like with Mary and Martha, and he's, he's there and he's comforting them. And he's engaging them with the power of comfort. And there's other times where he's moving towards people and he's, he's saying, your sins are forgiven. Other times, he's engaging by expressing his own need, like, will you please wait and pray with me for a while? And other times, he's looking someone straight in the face and challenging them, exhorting them right in front of everybody else. And Jesus loved in a whole bunch of different ways and a whole bunch of different methodologies, expressed itself in a whole bunch of different ways, and he was the best at people. And through his spirit, what that means is that he's calling us be good at people, too. Really good at people. See, becoming good at people, which is the title of our series, which is just another way of saying that becoming the kind of people who love their neighbor as themselves, it's becoming the kind of people who embody practices of relating that are reflective of the heart of God and and a reflective of the, v- the visible overflow of the gospel that we proclaim and that we hold and cling to. So as we're starting Epiphany now, engaged in a season that invites us to focus on the life and the ministry of Jesus, it's an invitation for us to become the kind of people that reflected the kind of love that Jesus reflected as he related to people. To become the kind of people who, who offer comfort when it's needed kind of people who live honestly and vulnerably in a way that, that says, I actually do need things. I am in need. The kind of people who become kind to people by inviting them into hospitality. The kind of people who repent and, and confess honestly, who, who forgive graciously. The kind of people who confront courageously. And here's the thing. There's real power in this way of living. Like real power. Power for healing and restoring the kind of relationships that are maybe broken in your own world. Power restoring the relationships that are out there and engaging people in a way that's different than anything they've ever experienced. And when we live out this kind of living, this kind of Jesus way out in the community, in front of other people and as a community, there's a powerful effect. It's actually so powerful that that it confronts An entire world culture that's operating and trading on self-sufficiency, self-care, self-help, self-protection, and self-promotion. If you're familiar with the New Testament, there's a whole bunch of passages that use the words one another. It's actually 59 times in the New Testament are the words one another declared, and they're a little bit everywhere from care for one another to, to pray for one another, exhort one another. One of the hallmarks, maybe I would say probably the first of these one another's comes from Jesus' lips himself. It's on the last night that he's alive and he's talking to his disciples, his co-workers, his his co-laborers, and he looks at them and he says, I'm giving you a new command in John 13. A new command I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the new command. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How we love one another is the number one evidence, the the greatest manifestation, the principal manifestation of who Jesus is, of the fact that we belong to him. Now, if you've been in the church any amount of time, if if you know your Bibles, you know this verse, right? But loved ones... Think about this. The number one way in which a watching world, in which anyone is going to see what Jesus is like, to understand the nature of the Trinity, is going to be in the way that we relate to one another. There is no greater call. There is no more significant thing that we can do than that we love one another in the way that Jesus invites us to. The credibility of our faith is primarily on display. And those of us that have been invaded by the life of Christ and begin to live it out in these very specific and very tangible ways. Did you hear what 1 Corinthians 13? It's not just theological knowledge or biblical eloquence or not even generosity, all of those being pivotal and important things. What we see in 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, okay, and we're not talking like low-grade stuff, we're using the word all, which means if I have almost this boundless amount, what does he say? But have not love. I am nothing. Nothing. Just like Jesus, Paul's using hyperbole here. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I know this is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, and it's read at weddings and stuff. Like, this is not a wedding passage. Like, love is patient, love is kind. It's like, oh, this is sweet. No, no, no. This is the dying kind of love, right? This is the, if you're burned at the stake, but you don't have love like this, it doesn't even matter, it doesn't count. It's like it didn't even happen. Christians should be should be good at people. We must be good at people. This is not sentimentality. It's a mark of what it looks like to belong to Jesus. And we in particular m- particular must love one another. Must love one another. Proof that we know God, and it's the proof that we're known by God. Well, this week, we're going to be dealing with this for this entire series, but this week we're going to be focusing on becoming good at people by focusing on what I believe is honestly probably the, the basis from which all relational impact, all opportunities for people to feel and to know that they are loved come from. That the, and it's the power of curiosity. Now, Bible scholars, there are a lot of one another's. As I said, fifty-nine of them. There is no be curious about one another. I acknowledge that. There is no be curious about one another. But but think about it. Bear one another's burdens. How do you do that? How, how do you do that if, if someone is not known? If you if you don't know what their burdens are, it, how how do you care for one? Another? How do you, how do you pray for one another? If you don't know, if, if you're not inside the heart of someone so that they can actually open themselves up to say, I, I am in need, how do, you, how do you confess your sins to one another? How do you, how do you forgive one another if you're, if you're not in a connected kind of relationship that says, I know you and you're known by me? That's why I feel like the simplest way of saying is that curiosity undergirds all the means by which we are going to one another anything. Curiosity is the gateway to all other means of loving, all other aspects of becoming good at people. So here's my definition of curiosity. You don't have to write it down, but I will say it twice in case you want to. So pens ready? <laughs> curiosity. It's not be different than maybe how you think about it. Curiosity is moving towards someone in love with the desire for them to experience God by being known, understood, heard, and seen. Curiosity is moving towards someone in love with the desire for them to experience God by being known and by being understood, by being heard, by being seen. Part of what it means to be human Part of every single one of the realities of the deep soul desires in our heart is that we all want to know and we all want to be known. Like we're made for that. that we're image bearers. Every image bearer is an image bearer of the Trinity, which is a which is a, a community of love that knows one another and delights in one another. We're made to, to know and be known. It's it's part of the ache of isolation, part of the deconstruction of our own bodies, it appears, is that when we're not, we're dying. We're dying, like we're falling apart. Which is one of the reasons why I think First Corinthians thirteen twelve is so powerful. It 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 articulates something deep in in our soul that we long for. It says, "For now we see in a mirror dimly." It's saying, (laughs) right now we don't have a clear sense of all that is. We can't understand even see God as clearly as we long to. It says, "But then, then face to face, like as a face to a face." Now I know in part, it says, then I shall know fully, but check this out. It doesn't say, even as I will be fully known. No, what does it say? Even as I have been fully known. Now, if I could like do a dive into your heart, my guess is you're sitting there going like, yeah, honestly, I... I have some people in my life that I think care for me, and you know I feel close to certain friends, maybe to your spouse. But like fully known, like yeah, that's not my—that's not the experience of my life. Eltoid, anyone? That's not the experience of my life. Um, that's not the experience of my life. Fu- am I fully known? H- how can you be fully known? You're fully known right now that's the hope that's the promise but there's the ache right we get back to the fully known at the end that's the ache though we want to be fully known and we, and we don't experience that and, and even in the best relationships we don't we don't come to know that do you know what being known feels like it feels like being loved do you know what heaven will feel like you know, i feel like being fully known you know what being fully known will feel like It'll feel like love in ways in which I don't think we can even conceive of right now. So you can't separate being known from being loved. You can't. And you can't know someone without curiosity. And by curiosity, I don't just mean questions. I'm not talking about skills, though there is skill to curiosity. I'm talking about a disposition, being the kind of people who have curious hearts, who want to know someone else in, in, in order to invite them into what God has for them, to see them and have them be known. Now, curiosity covers the pages of Scripture. Jesus, um, Jesus asks 307 questions. That's as many as are recorded in all the Gospels. Now, obviously, because the Gospels duplicate, there is some duplication there. It's in the 150 to 180 specific exact questions. But Jesus asks all kinds of questions. He's always being curious about things. You know, the Son of Man who knows all things. He says, like, by what authority did John the Baptist do these things? His rebuttal question. In a crowded group, who touched me? Who, who do you say that I am? He looks at a 38 years in a bed man who's never walked and he says, do you want to be healed? One of my favorites he looks at the disciples on the road and he says, what were you discussing on the road? And they're like, who's the greatest? <laughs> the most frequent question that Jesus asks is, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that an amazing question? What, what do you want me to do for you? He Jesus knows what you need. He knew what all these people needed. But he moved with curiosity. What do you want me to do for you? And of course, we see this in the Old Testament, too. God moves towards people with questions. Questions when it doesn't seem like a question is fitting, right? He looks at Job, and he says, after Job's great laments, and many, many, and all the way to chapter 38, and looks at Job and said, says, Where were you when I founded the earth? Or he looks at Jonah after Jonah's super angry because, you know, like he was waiting for the city to get destroyed and then this plant grew up and so he wasn't hot for a minute, you know? The kind of perspective you have when you have a plant grow up above you and you're not hot and frustrated and angry at God for a second and the plant dies and God asks, I think, one of the best questions in the Bible, (laughs) which is, Job, do you have the right to be angry about the plant? I know this is going to be for your devotional time alone with God that you want to go and focus on that, but like... (laughs) What an amazing question that is. God's going inside Jonah by asking him a question. But I I think maybe the most most amazing moment happens. The moment after the fall, Adam and Eve break fellowship with God. They rebel and go away. What's the first thing that God does, does when he shows up? What does he say? He asks a question, right? Where are you? Like, how crazy is that, that God is moving with curiosity towards people? He knows exactly what unfolded. But the dignity, the invitation, the call towards, you see, the questions of Jesus and the gospel and the questions of God, of his people throughout the entire Old Testament are calling out. They're simultaneously inviting people into their own hearts and towards him. They're inviting people into their own hearts. Do you have the right to be angry about the plant? And towards him. And as people who belong to Jesus, as people who are participants in the kingdom of God, with God, that's exactly what we do too. We ask the kinds of curious questions. We enter with curiosity towards people. They would be driven into their own hearts and they'd be invited towards God. That's what curiosity is. Barnabas Piper, which if you're John Piper, you name your son Barnabas, in case you're wondering. Um, Barnabas Piper, uh, he wrote a book called The Curious Christian, and uh, here's a phenomenal quote. He says, "Uh, curiosity combined with courage presses in and and digs deeper. We found out about their outward life, right? Their hobbies, their preferences, their history. But now, we take the risk of finding out about their inner life. Hopes, beliefs, passions, dreams, fears. Curiosity takes risks and steps into the unknown. It digs into shadowy places where there might be treasure or there might be pain. This is the ground of real friendship, and I would say this is the ground of real community. The reality is that people are much more likely to open up to us than we think. We just need to go first. In fact, they've been hungering for someone to connect with as well. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that curiosity can transform a friendship. I think it can it can f- shape and form a family. I think it can impact marriages. I believe it can change the way in which you relate to your coworkers. And I and I'm certain of the fact that it can transform a church. If the church were full of curious people, I believe that that I believe that no one would feel isolated and alone. And I know some of you feel isolated and alone the church were curious, one of the things that would manifest itself is we wouldn't be so weird about engaging with people that are just different than us, socially, economically, different different race, different different age. Teenagers, you know this, right? Oh, two teenage shots today. Hey, not shots, two teenage acknowledgements. Teenagers, do you know that, like, adults are afraid of you? <laughs> no, no, it's for real. Like, it's a true thing. Like, like most adults, like, I, I don't know what, what happens. You, like, turn 25 and you're like, well, teenagers are crazy. But, like, they're, they're actually nervous. They're, they're uncomfortable, not sure how to relate to you. You're maybe not as predictable as they would like. And But I remember this. I was a youth pastor, and trust me, like most adults were just really uncomfortable with teenagers. They weren't sure what to do with them. A curiosity would say that you're able to, I don't care what season of life you're in, you're able to engage a teenager that you might be nervous about because you're forged by something else in a way that brings curiosity and invites them towards God because you want to know them more than you might be uncomfortable by them. That you'd engage someone of a different social economic class, or someone that you heard is really struggling with some stuff, and you would move towards them because you want them to be known, and you want to potentially be the conduit that invites them towards God. That's curiosity. So why aren't we curious? I think there's some barriers to curiosity. As I've been thinking through this, I think there's two foundational barriers. One one is fear, and the other one's arrogance. Fear fear and arrogance. And, and by the way, uh, none of us want to say that we're afraid. That's why teenagers, I'm letting you know, adults are afraid of you, but they won't tell you. Um, because that's weakness, right? We're not afraid. <laughs> we got this, but we're afraid. I think some of the reasons why we're not curious is that we're afraid that we, um, that we won't be known. That if we really moved, if you walked in this morning or if you show up at work tomorrow or if you go to, you, to the school bus tomorrow with all the parents, that, that if you don't come with something to be able to, to tell people about and if you're not going to be able to share your life, then you're not going to be known today. We're afraid no one's going to ask us. And so if we come with curiosity, no one's going to pursue us and we'll end up not known and we'll be alone. It's like, it's like we're hungry and starving and, and so we just got to get something for us. Or at least say something first. I think the other thing we're afraid of is, is that we're not wanting to be curious about people because when you ask people questions, they might tell you stuff. And some of that stuff might be messy, uncomfortable. It might be stuff that you don't know what to do about. It may be too close to home for you. And so so we're better off just staying a couple clicks away, staying at the how you doing kind of level. We don't know how, and some of us have never, we never had it modeled to us what it looks like to step in, to to ask curious questions, and then to find ourselves really uncomfortable and go like, oh, this to be uncomfortable. But I'm going to stay in. No, we step out, or we stay out. We don't go there at all. I think some of us are afraid of discovering um, if we move towards somewhere, we're afraid of discovering someth- that someone else thinks something that makes what we think or believe or hold to like shakier than we want it to be, and so we're just not going to go there. We don't want to go to places where, wait, you start expressing that you believe in these things, and I think honestly, oftentimes as, as Christians we're not curious of other people, even other faiths because we're like, what if they make me change my mind? You know, it's like I don't know. What does that mean? If you're afraid that they might change your mind, like I don't know. Ask some questions, right? I mean, this is the whole point. But we're afraid, right? That's why. That's why no one's listening to each other about anything right now, right? We just fire across. No one's listening. We're not curious to hear or know. I mean, lo and behold, if we might have our hearts moved or changed in the other direction, and we don't want that. I think that one of the best biblical pictures of this is uh, is when Jesus. Um, or where is the actual passage? Um, Oh, yeah, Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter, um, Mark chapter 8, not ch- Mark chapter 9, for the first time, he tells the disciples, I'm going to cru- be crucified in Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be handed over. It's the first time he declares it to them. And you know what it says? It says the disciples were afraid, and they didn't ask him anything about it. Now, is it they're afraid because Jesus is this tyrant? You better not ask her. I'm going to, don't make me, right? Is that Jesus? Like, is that the Jesus of the gospel? Like, it's just not. Like, one of the things I'm convinced of, of that passage and, you know, but is they don't want to know what it means. You know why? Because it doesn't go with anything they want to have happen. They don't want to know. And so they're just going to stay away. They're afraid that the reality that Jesus told them is going to change everything about their lives, and they don't want any part of that. So they're just going to stay out, and we stay out. Because just maybe I'll get uncomfortable. They say something that might mess with some of my philosophy, some of the way in which my life works in a nice, tidy little box. I think the last fear is that we don't, um, don't want to be curious in a way that doesn't at least get a chance for us to share our thing, because so we don't want anybody to think that we're agreeing with the way they're living, or with what they believe, or with or th- or th- what, they p- what they prefer. Um, and so if we're really curious about them, and we don't get to say our piece, well, then they might think that we actually approve of it, and well that's, that's unacceptable, right? I, I don't want to be, the worst thing that could happen is I would be misunderstood, as maybe affirming something or saying something that I don't want to say. And, and that's more important than someone feeling known, which would be the experience of, of being close by God. We're afraid. I think some of us are afraid because we don't ask questions of ourselves. And so, and so how how are we going to ask questions of other people because we're not interested in knowing what's going on in our own souls? We don't let the scriptures examine our souls. We don't ask questions of God and then wait to actually hear from Him. We, we don't want to know. Like, There's some stuff going on in here. I just don't want to know. Let's just, let's just leave it alone and hopefully it doesn't leak. <laughs> you're leaking. And one of the ways you're leaking is that you're not willing and able to be curious because you have no experience of it in yourself. You're afraid. But also, I think the other barrier is just arrogance. And that is, we don't ask questions, we don't engage in curiosity because we think we already know. Like, we, we you know, like, I've seen the way you handle your kids, and, um, yeah, I don't really need to ask any questions about that. <laughs> I know the way I think children should be handled, and that's not it. So I'm not going to enter that, right? I'm not going to be curious. I'm not going to step alongside. I'm not going to say, hey, listen, tell me a little bit about... No, I'm, I'm going to stay over here because I already know. Now, I may very much so move to the next thing, and that's the other way of arrogance. And we're not curious because we want to make sure that we tell someone how their life should be. <laughs> and I think we're professionals at that. Especially with the people that we feel the safest with, right? We're more than glad to, to let them know all the things and ways in which they should be different. But we're not curious. We're not led into things with curiosity first. It's in short, we're arrogant because we think we know. We know what their right beliefs, right values, right, um, right behavior should be. God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life, you know, you know the, the adage. The antidote to fear is vulnerability, courageous vulnerability. To so say, wow, that, that sounds really overwhelming, what's going on in your life. I, w- I have no idea what to say to that, other than I'm really sorry. It's it's entering in saying, this is probably going to make me uncomfortable, and I want to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I don't know that there's a higher value in our context than being comfortable. Which is why the things that happen online would never happen face-to-face, ever. Right? I'm, all, I'm pretty much never, unless someone's drunk, it's not happening, right? I mean... The antidote to fears, courageous vulnerability, and, and of course, the antidote to arrogance is is humility. You say, maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't understand their experience. Maybe I don't realize what's going on with their family, or or, or the reality of what it means to to be an adopted parent. Or maybe, maybe there's some things that I don't understand, and I should go and find out and enter that world. And maybe, who knows? Maybe I actually actually one another of them a little bit in the midst of it, instead of standing back. I could humble myself to say, maybe I have something to learn here. So how do we practice curiosity? How do we, in a sense, how do we get beyond, it's practical, but how do we get beyond the how are you, right, which is, which is the American adage, right? You would never go to Russia and say, how are you? They'd be like, get away from me, right? Tell me, ask me how much I make, and then I'll tell you, but that, that you would never do that here, right? But how are you is what we say. I mean, it happened this morning. I was standing out in the lobby, and someone walked up to me and said, hey, how are you? I said, good, how are you? And I was like, no, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. we get beyond how are you we ask questions and, and loved ones let me remind you we ask questions because God asks questions because he moves with love and he asks questions so that's why we ask questions and we move beyond how are you if um, <laughs> I don't do the how are you thing anymore and a few, of a few of you have been victims of this I'll call it victim of my unwillingness to answer the how are you question anymore um, and uh, I think it was one of them was just a couple of weeks ago, I said, I said, I don't know how to answer that question. You're going to have to give me a quadrant or some kind of, like, area to answer, because that, and some of it's just, like, I can't figure out how I'm doing in general, so, like, so if you ask me specifically, hey, so how are you doing, you know, with your wife? I'm like, oh okay, cool, we can talk about that, because there's somewhere to go, right? That's something specific I can connect to. So we ask questions. We don't just, and and, and when I say questions, I think one of the ways, and I I know you're going like, it's curiosity, of course you ask questions, Matt. Like, what do you think, we're stupid? No, I'm talking about like we ask questions, and questions and questions, the kind of questions that lead places. Uh, One of the cool exercises, if you want to become someone whose heart is moved towards curiosity, who develops both the skill and the desire to, there's a couple cool things we've done in the past. We did it at a staff retreat once. I did a thing called 30 Curious Minutes, where we just took one person, and like, no one was allowed to say anything, other than to ask a question. We spent 30 minutes just kind of basically pestering the person with questions, and it was awesome because everyone went in different directions, right? And next thing you know, they're telling stories that I've never heard. People I've known for years never heard these stories before because people were asking questions and were going to the next thing and the next question. It was amazing. Try it at home. Try it with your friends. Do it at dinner. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. It can be 15 minutes, but, but the mentality is no one gets to say anything. You don't get to go like, oh, me too, and then I went on the vacation. Me, 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 no, 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 them, them, them. That's what love looks like. So we ask questions and more questions, good questions. Um, I, I'm going to give you one question, which I think is a cool question that could be morphed in a whole bunch of different ways. And, um, and proof of the it, you know, Eddie walked in this morning, my first question to him was like, hey, Eddie, um, what's the best thing about your week? Um, and then he, he shared something that was actually tough about his week. So I, I think one of the best questions that you can ask someone if at any context, that means walking into church or or someone you see once a week or at lunch or someone from, from your work is, um, what's been the best part of your week or what's been the hardest part of your week? What's the thing that's the weightiest on you and what's the thing that you're most excited about? Because that's that's an open invitation for someone to say, oh, you, you want to know me? Well, I'll give you this. And then you get to do something amazing. The most important part of curiosity, you get to listen. And we struggle to listen. We really, really do. Especially if we're uncomfortable. We're listening to us. But we're not listening to them anymore. We get to listen. We get to we get to pay attention, and, and this is my two cents on 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 the, on the power of listening. But that we get to listen, we get to listen for like those um, those powerful words that stick out. Like I don't know, I was just I was really embarrassed by that. Like words like embarrassed. That's a interesting word. It seems like kind of bigger word. Or you get to like you you, you listen for where the energy is in a conversation, or in a declaration, or in a statement. And then. You ask the next question. Curiosity is crazy. It's asking questions, listening, and then asking questions. I know. You're going like, this is so, how we figured this out? But we we listen and we, we, we look for the thing that was like, that stood out because we're listening not just to what the person is saying, though we are, we're listening to our interior world, listening to ourselves, and we're listening to God because believe it or not, He's talking. If you're listening, He's talking. And if you will listen, and that's why that's why I said about about Betty this morning. Like I, so immediately, I found myself going like something's up, and, and and it's like God's like, yeah, ask the next question, and so some of what it means by asking the next question is we listen to and look for the energy, and and we're moving towards the person by saying like, tell me tell me more about that. One of my favorite things. If you're, if you're around me, you know I say this all the time. I'd be like, say more about that, right? You'll be talking about something. I'll be like, huh? Say more about that. Well, one of the things that happened this week, it was just after a meeting. I was talking to somebody, and uh, and th- this guy's j- g- his wife just gone through a pretty major transition in their life, and and so we were we were talking through some of that and about just kind of asked the next question and the next question. And about four or five minutes in, we realized, man, the two the shares that basically the two of them are facing some pretty real trying to figure out decision making about some major decisions in their life, and so um, I did the thing that I told you I did last week, right? And I went ahead and said, I know this is going to feel like I'm doing the thing for my sermon, but hey, what do you sense God's saying to you about this? And what was awesome is that um, he didn't answer it. He he, he didn't. And, and by the way, this is someone who's actually really connected to their own heart. like, And, and uh, he told me about like, all the background and the ways in which uh, their their own upbringings and challenges are contributing to how they're wrestling with this decision, and and it was all really interesting and really insightful, and it told me a little bit more about them, but it wasn't the answer to the question. And so I did that thing, which um, I invite you to do in the uncomfortable moments of, like, I could let this go, or I could go, that's awesome. But what is God saying to you in this? And... It was awesome. I love this guy. He just smiled. He smiled and he said, "Yeah, I, I don't know." So I said, "But yeah, have you asked him?" And he smiled again. And he said, "I don't, I don't think so." <laughs> I said, well, wh- "What might it look like for you and your wife to ask him together?" I said, "I think that'd be really cool." And I don't have like. I didn't get, like, pastor superpowers, you know, when they they give me my seminary degree. Like, I didn't want to ask it again. I felt aware of even asking the question that might be like, oh, it's the question. It's the thing you're going to feel when you're out in the lobby after the church and someone goes, hey, so what was the best part of your week? You're like, you're just doing the sermon thing, right? (laughs) Like when your wife says it would be meaningful for you to bring me flowers, you're like, well, I can't bring them for a couple weeks because that would be, right? Which is the wrong decision, but nonetheless feels like the right decision. I'm telling you. Become comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what the gospel in us looks like because we have something deeper inside of us that invites us to love. That's that's what it means to move towards people with curiosity. By the way, I fumble and miss this all the time, all the live long day, and later on I'll be like, that was a moment, flew right by, which is a great opportunity to be like, hey, I think I missed something. What was going on there? Get to love one another well. you're in a community group with RCC or in any other community group, this is the primary environment where you get to practice this. One of our values in community, for community groups, is curiosity. That you would pursue one another, that you would be curious about one another. We talk about, I called transcendent curiosity, but... Our desire for you if you're in a community group, and this is true in community group, this is true in friendship, this is true in marriage, right? But I'm talking about like, one of the things I want you to focus on is if you've been, if you said, hey, okay, cool, we're doing this together, we're going to walk towards Jesus together, you're a little strange and we're getting to know each other, but we're going to do this together. If you're willing to do that, then some of what it means is being willing to be curious, to listen to God on behalf of someone else, and to be focused on someone with a genuine interest and curiosity, to couple your natural curiosity of questions with listening to the Spirit and what He might have For them. Spirit-led curiosity is a desire to truly know another, to understand the events and the patterns of their lives and relationships, and then how how they are uniquely experiencing, interpreting, and responding to it with God. That's what spirit-led curiosity looks like. And curiosity has I think is actually, again, as I said, the basis from which we do community well. The, all the other, lo- the one another's that we're going to be talking about, all the other the other love methodologies and, and, and evidences that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come, I feel like they're all undergirded by this. I feel like if curiosity is not a part of it, it's probably not really happening. Um, but it's not just in with one another, though I think that's <laughs> a must. Um, there, are, there are hundreds and thousands of people that all of you interact with every single day that They don't know Jesus. They don't know the God who who has come and said, I have a way of you being known and being so sure that you're known that you can find rest in the midst of any kind of isolation, any kind of sense of being alone or even being on your own. And what they're longing for is for someone to represent that, to give them a taste of that by moving towards them with the kind of curiosity that says, I want you to be known. I want to love you in a way that helps you be known and that invites you towards God because I know him and he knows me. And I want you to know him. Loved ones, there's a bunch of you that are like really uncomfortable with the thought of having a Jesus conversation with someone. And I just want to say, if that's where you're at, then be the most curious person in the world. Ask questions until someone asks you a question. And become known. Become known as that weird person that always asks the question. That makes people uncomfortable because they're always like, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more of that about you. They, some, someone asks you a question, you tell them a little bit about what happened, and you say, have you ever experienced anything like that? Tell me about it. The person who actually moves towards people with love and, and concern, who wants to see them because they want them to be known. ones, that's... That's evangelism 101. It's actually the beginning of moving towards people who don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, my hope is today is that you would know that you can be known. You can be known. If you remember, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 is riding on a chariot, and uh, God sends Philip to him, and what does Philip do? Does he go... Can I tell you what Isaiah 53 means? Nope. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how, how can I understand if no one explains it to me? And he invites him into his chariot. The end of that story involves a water and a man being changed for the rest of his life and, and being recorded as, one. Of, I think, one of the more beautiful pieces of Acts. Like, that's what we're being invited into. How do we become these kinds of people? How do we... D- we must be at rest in the fact that we are known. That 1 that Corinthians 13, um, thirteen twelve is telling the truth that, that we will know in full, but we are fully known, present tense. I don't know how lonely you feel right now. Some of you might be lonely in your marriages. Some of you might be lonely because you're not married. Some of you have been lonely your whole life, even though you had a lot of people around you. Some of you used to have friendships, and now they've dissipated. Maybe you're more isolated than you've ever been. You need to hear me today. You are known. He sees you. He knows you. Psalm 139 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. you become curious people as you walk around not with this gap of feeling known and isolation. You walk around with the sack lunch of being known. And at any moment you're like, I feel a little isolated. You reach down and you're like, oh, the Lord knows me. He knows my rising up and my, my going. He, he knows every. He, before I'm about to ask that question to that person that's uncomfortable to me, he knows it's on my lips. Like, he knows me. He's here. He's with me. That's how we become curious people. But ultimately we become curious people because because curiosity is the evidence of love, of people being known. And as Jesus said, we love out of being loved. Just as I have loved you, Jesus said, love one another. See, if curiosity is moving towards someone else for the purpose of them being known and to be able to be in fellowship and connection with God because of being known, then and that's exactly what Jesus did for you. As he hung on the cross, Jesus asked the question that would be or should be on every single one of our lips. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? It's the last question Jesus would ask. And it should be on our lips because we should be forsaken. But he hung there, asked that question so that we never have to. You want to know how you can be curious? You know how you can not be worried about being uncomfortable? It's because you're loved, because it is well with you. And this meal is this is this incredible reminder. It's like this rejuvenation moment for you to be re- reminded that, like, there is one who knows you, and there is one who loves you. It is well with your soul, and you can go out and spread the goodness of that with confidence and joy, and it will be your joy. That's what this meal reminds us of, that he loved you that much, that he hung for that mu- for you that much, that he died for you. So, if you belong to Jesus, this meal is for you. It's a a rejoicing meal. It's a remembrance that the day is coming when we will know for sure. We will see face to face. Right now we have symbols and signs and we remember and we anticipate with joy. So, let me pray. Father, we love you. And you have been after us since the foundation of the world And, and there's not one person sitting in this room that belongs to you, that has been found by you that hasn't been found by you, not because of our good deeds, not because of how, how eager we were to find you, but because of your tender mercy, because you do not relent, because you move towards, you come to. And so, Lord, we today want to thank you. We want to remember the way in which knowledge did you come and were born and lived this perfect life for us, but then you died for us. And we want to remember that. We want to take it into us, and we want it to galvanize us to be the kind of people who can give that kind of love away. Christ our Savior, we glorify you. Be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus, amen. Well, if you belong to Christ, this is your meal, so come forth and receive the body and blood of Christ.